are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. When things fall apart. When all the wheels come off the bus, this is Paula's title. Whenever we give talks, Paula, this is where we get the most questions and concerns and hesitancy, I think, from prescribers. They worry, and I don't think this is unique to addiction medicine. I think this is in all of medicine. When you're dealing with difficult or manipulative patients, sometimes you're going to encounter the difficult patient. And how do you manage that? Yes, you will encounter that in addiction medicine as well. So we're going to talk about it. What do you do in those situations? Sounds great. We're going to go through three different cases. These are very similar to patients that we have taken care of. Hopefully this will ring true to many of you out there. So our first patient, patient X, this is our quote unquote chronic relapser co-user. If you haven't seen this, you will, right, Paula? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Patient X is a 48-year-old male with a 19-year history of IV heroin use, co-using methamphetamines. He's been in five previous treatment programs, but has either been discharged or left due to continued use. Presents for outpatient treatment for buprenorphine naloxone. After three months in treatment, continues to use methamphetamine. He does stay abstinent from opiates, but he is lost to follow-up. After eight months, he returns to treatment, requesting to restart buprenorphine naloxone. What do you do in this situation? How do you manage how do you manage him and keep him engaged in care with this cycle of return to use and his reluctance to stop using the methamphetamines? Frequently I will encounter patients who have been discharged from their program. In their words, they've been kicked out of their rehab because they had relapsed either on their drug of choice or they had relapsed on another substance. Our goal is we want to continue to find a way to engage them in treatment. And what do we do when they're ambivalent to just treatment? So Paula, what are your ideas? And then we'll jump in. Yeah, well, I think this is really common. And the more addiction medicine, you know, the more folks we see with substance use, the more we see this complicated drug use, especially now where people are using more than one substance. And it's just very common to see people fall in and out of treatment. And, you know, we see, we tend to think that treatment with buprenorphine naloxone is the magic answer to everything. And it's really not. I mean, people still struggle with sobriety. There's a lot of factors that go into substance use, including a very organic process, environmental factors. And so to just think that people are going to come to us and remain abstinent from the day they walk in our doors naive. It just gets really tricky when we have folks who come in and out of treatment. When they come, they want to just get right back on medication. Maybe they're continuing to use their other drugs, like you said, and you know, what do we do? And I think it's, I think this is a hard question. And it's one that's really evolved for me over time. And I've kind of distilled it down to a couple of things. And this is just personal, but one is, you know, are we providing some improvement in their quality of life by providing them the level of treatment that we are providing. 
So in other words, is this the right level of treatment for them? And if it's not, is it our obligation and our medical responsibility to refer them to the right level of treatment? And I use the analogy all the time of pneumonia or cancer. And I say, if you had a pneumonia and you needed oxygen and you needed IV antibiotics and you needed breathing treatments, it wouldn't be appropriate for you to for me to see you here in my clinic. You'd need to be in the hospital for, for you to get well. Or same with cancer. You know, if you had a cancer diagnosis, you would need all the specialists and all the surgeries and all the medications with a lot of intensity. And thinking that I could do all of that here is just doing you wrong. And, you know, the same is true for addiction. Some severe addictions really need much more intense treatment than I can give you. And I think you have the same approach in terms of level of care, right? Absolutely. And recognizing we have rural docs out there. They can't just refer to their local IOP or even an inpatient. I mean, sometimes for the patient, there's not even a methadone clinic within 250 miles. So I recognize that for many of our listeners out there that sometimes you may be the only doc in town. It's not always easy for you to just be able to say, I recognize this person needs a higher level of care. And sometimes you are the best that they've got, but recognizing, okay, this is what we can do. Now, I think this is the one thing that the pandemic has changed. What can we get? Like you need at least therapy in addition to just medication. And I think that's one thing that I agree, Paula, that has evolved a little bit because so many patients will come in. Well, I just need my, I just need my buprenorphine. Just give me my subs. This is very similar to a patient I just had where what we're currently doing isn't working. We need to do something different. Wasn't open to an IOP, wasn't open to a higher level of care, but I said, we need to do something different, but he was open to individual therapy. And with televisits, we could get him to do some counseling that did make a difference. So sometimes when you are in a situation where you feel like I am trying, I'm trying to get this patient to a higher level of care and it's, it's not working. We can use whatever resources are available to you. Use them. Yeah, that's amazing. I agree with that. And then the other flip side of that is that a lot of times, you know, the buck stops with us. And we're, and this is not a narcissistic statement, thinking that we're the be all and end all of addiction treatment. But a lot of times, you know, if you're treating someone for addiction, there's a reason why you're treating someone for addiction. It's because you have an interest, you have a capacity, and you have the compassion mindset to see someone who has a very complicated psychosocial biological process going on in their life. And if you say, look, I just can't help you, you need to go somewhere else, knowing full well that they're not going to access that level of care. You're basically putting that person out to really just suffer in the extremes of their disease in extremis. And people are ambivalent about continuing to use, they're ambivalent about getting well, and that's part of the process. So I think the biggest evolvement in my approach... To- okay, I love that part. I'm going to stop you there, Paula. We encounter that so much, that ambivalence with patients, and you encounter that in addiction, but it doesn't mean that the patient won't engage in treatment. This is where we struggle so many times. This patient right now maybe is ambivalent about stopping his methamphetamine use. He is wanting to engage with you on stopping his opiate use. Hey, I'm going to meet you where you are. Let's work on the opiate use, and then I'm going to keep trying 
trying to use motivational interviewing and seeing what we can do to reduce harms and get them to kind of think about stopping their methamphetamine use, to try to just move the needle a little bit on that ambivalence. But I think that is such a good point, Paula. Exactly. Because I mean, if you, if we don't treat people, you know, if we don't answer the request to help with heroin use or opioid use, I mean, the chances of death are what, 20% a year. With methamphetamine use, it's a terrible drug and it has long-term and short-term effects. But if we tell people, you know, you must be 100% abstinent. And of course, people, you want to hold people accountable and have safe boundaries within your practice, etc. And it has to be, you know, you need to have some kind of treatment agreement where you're not having a free-for-all. You need to minimize diversion, etc. But keeping people alive, no one ever recovered from addiction dead, right? You've heard that saying and engagement is key. It's just adapting the way that we meet people. And I think that's the other thing is looking at not why patients are failing treatment. Like, why is this person falling out of treatment? Why, why did he disappear for eight months? Why has he been to five treatment programs? Why does he keep getting fired? What if about turning the table and seeing why the medical system is failing him. Can he not afford his medication? Does he not have uh, transportation? Does he not have a stable place to live? Is he psychiatrically unstable and disorganized so that he cannot take his medication regularly? Or is the model of accessing medical care in this country where you make an appointment at nine o'clock on a Thursday and unless you show up, you don't get your prescription, doesn't suit him. And so we need to look at the way we deliver care and the social determinants of health and and think, you know, maybe we've got it all wrong. Kind of the statutes that we place around treatment and the way people show up sober, not sober, the way that we're delivering care really needs to change. Those are really, really good points. Blaming the patient. One thing about addiction is it affects so many facets of their lives. The psychosocial, the co-occurring mental health disorders, all of that prevents them from getting the care that they need. When I do have patients who return to treatment, I always try to make sure on that visit, it's not just, okay, let's just pick up where we left off. I always want to know, well, what's been happening? What happened? Where are we going to go from here? And what are your goals now? I love it. I really love what you said about goal, you know, assessing what people's goals are, what they really want. And I think we far too often assume that we know what people want and what they want from us. And, you know, there's a lot of layers to that. There's cultural layers, there's medical cultural layers, and being careful of the assumption. And sometimes we don't need to do anything. People want to stay using or they are staying using, then they just keep showing up and we just sit and talk to them and see what we can do. Sometimes it's just offering them a bottle of, of water to drink while they're in our waiting room and just a kind word. Kelly Lundberg, who's that amazing psychologist, University of Utah, she teaches the motivational interviewing course for the psychiatry residents and the addiction medicine fellows. And her main point that she always delivers is just be kind, be kind to people, even if they drive you kind of crazy, because you never know when people will show up two years later and say, I wasn't ready, or there was a lot going on then, I just couldn't access what you were offering. But I just remember that you were nice. You were nice to me. So I knew I could come back to you. I knew that your door was open. So in other words, always leave your door open. Now, of course, you can sit 
boundaries in a very polite way in terms of what it's not a free for all buffet of choose what you want. You know, I want this medication and this medication and, and inappropriate phone calls and requests. But at the end of the day, engagement is key. I love what you said about reassessing goals, assessing if they need something different because treatment's not working, like you said, making sure that harm reduction plays into every level of this. Well, how can we improve quality of life, keep people alive, prevent them from catching infectious diseases? And then at the end of the day, be compassionate and realize that we might be the only resource for that person. I think that's great. With this patient, so patient X, after more information, it was found in the past eight months, he had lost his job and had been homeless for four of those months after finding a job and stabilizing is what triggered him to return to treatment. He was open to starting therapy. He had had some previous negative experiences with 12-step groups and was not open to referrals to group therapy or intensive treatment program. He was willing to talk about his methamphetamine use. And interestingly, on further discussions, he says he really didn't crave it. He mostly would use it when he couldn't access his drug of choice. With regular follow-up and therapy, we actually disagreed continued use in three weeks. Just even a single intervention and adjustments in their treatment plan can have a stabilizing effect on a patient. Absolutely. And don't forget contingency management, woohoo, you know, Absolutely. thinking outside of the box, thinking how you can make access to treatment more readily, readily available in your community so that people don't fall out of treatment. And whether it's using caseworkers, peer support people, street outreach, and contingency management incentivization for people to maintain active in your clinics. I think it's such an important point that social, how much these other factors play a part. We see this all the time. All right, case two. Patient Y is aggressive, angry, manipulative, demanding patient. 32-year-old in treatment for OUD on buprenorphine naloxone has been in treatment for 10 months. They're presenting for a follow-up visit, reporting increased anxiety due to recent death of, of their dog and requesting Xanax prescription, insisting that it's the only thing that helps. When the request is denied, patient becomes very angry and aggressive and is shouting at you. Paula, this probably happens to us weekly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We're not alone, at least, right? Yes. Yeah, we're not alone. This is why we have allies. This is why we get to talk to each other about this. Yes, this is probably the most common reason. Well, common reason sometimes for burnout, but I don't think it's talked about. Yeah. It's, it's just sometimes the verbal and the mental abuse that physicians endure from patients. Yeah, and you, exactly. And you know, what you're saying is we laugh about it, but it's really not funny. I mean, it takes a lot of emotional energy to have negative energy kind of thrown at you repeatedly during the day. It's uh, it's difficult. And I think as the provider in a clinic, you, you brave up the front and we're protective of our staff. We're protective of our front desk and our MAs and other people in our clinic. And so when they get treated poorly too, we step up to try and buffer that. But yeah, you're totally right. It, it's, it is a cause for burnout. And so Sometimes it's not just a verbal abuse. Sometimes people posture and make us physically feel afraid that they may hurt us 
us or hurt, be violent. And that's, that's, that's scary. It's a scary environment. That's a threat to our safety. Yeah. So first couple of things we want to discuss that this case points out is one, how do you deal with an angry and threatening patient? And two, how do you say no to inappropriate requests? When you have an angry and aggressive patient that you are in a room alone with and they become angry and aggressive, it's important, number one, keep the space typically at least one and a half to three feet between you and the patient. I will often, if a patient's really becoming agitated, keeping your voice very calm. It's really important to keep it calm. Keep your statements very simple. When a patient is anxious and very agitated, it that part of your brain also kind of shuts off. They can't, they really truly can't hear you and comprehend. So avoid lengthy explanations. It's okay to just pause. If they are just verbally threatening you, it's okay to just say, I, I see that you're upset and it's okay if we just end the conversation and we can talk about this later. Or I see that you're really upset. I'm going to step out of the room and give you some time to calm down. If the patient insists on continuing to talk, it's okay to say, I'm going to open the door and we're just going to have the door open. Or I'm going to request that somebody else come and join us in the room and have another staff member present. Other things, Paula, what have you done in these situations? Yeah, I love all of those tools. Using You said using a really clear, clear, calm voice is helpful in lowering the volume of your voice with kind of easy body language, being relaxed, and just saying, kind of instilling hope with the patient. So you you made that great suggestion of kind of reaffirming that the patient or reflecting and observing yes. that the patient is upset. So I see you're upset. I understand this is distressing to you. And then affirming that resolution is possible. So I think we can figure this out. I think we can find a solution here. I think that's, that's helpful without getting argumentative, which is really tempting and really difficult to do. I would say one of the thing that I learned working in a psychiatric hospital and in a methadone clinic is if you feel unsafe at any point, get up and leave. I mean, at some point, you don't need to negotiate or calm the patient down. You need to protect yourself. The other thing is if you are witnessing or overhear a loud, an escalating conversation in another room, go and just stand outside or knock on the door and say, hey, is everything okay in here? And we call that a show of force. And it's been shown to be very effective at, at de-escalating situations. So someone's in the room yelling at a provider. And next thing, four or five staff members are standing at the door saying, hey, is everything okay? And there's no threat for restraint or tussle. It's just the fact that, oh, suddenly there's eight people looking at me. I better calm down. And it's much more effective than having to suddenly get someone into a position where they're forced to calm down. That is such an excellent point. Yeah, of just calmly just having that extra person there. And like you said, backing up your staff if the person's already escalating on your poor medical assistant, which is... Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The other thing that um, I was just looking at these tips for police officers for de-escalation, and one of the ones that that they recommend, and I think this is so smart, is determine if they need some kind of a have a physical need that needs to be met. Say, hey, would can I get you a glass of water right now? You know, how about we just take a break from the conversation and we can get you a snack. You can have a drink. You know, get your. Do you need to use the restroom? Like, get those basic needs met and give them that kind of stopgap to to just 
just kind of stop and take a break. Some time to kind of save face. I'm going to give you a moment. Allowing yourself a moment to also to exit the room. Let's just calm down a little bit and see. You know, if someone's truly, truly unstable, not calming down. So you have procedures in your clinic. So your staff know what to do when we have a have a threat or danger. So everyone can just calmly proceed. Right. What about actually addressing the request itself? Yes. How do you, How do you say no? <laughs> how do you say no? I decided that we need to teach residents how to do this because... I need weekly reassurance of how to do this. We did some research on this. There are some great articles, two of them in family practice management that you can find on AAFP.org, getting to know how to respond to inappropriate patient requests and the fine art of refusal, and then how to manage difficult patient encounters. I think those are great resources. Even NIDA has one on principles of effective treatment. They mentioned you can use the favor response when you're trying to respond to inappropriate requests. What that stands for is recognize uncomfortable feelings. A patient comes in and asks you to do something that you are uncomfortable with. So you first you have to recognize that. You need to analyze why you feel uncomfortable. It's not why the patient says, it's why you feel uncomfortable. And then try to view the patient in the best possible light. So it's not because this patient is trying to manipulate you. It's not here. It's not because they're a bad person. He's here because his dog died. He's truly upset and distraught. And he's had Xanax in the past and his old doctor always gave it to him. And he's very upset that why won't you give it to him? That's that's a valid question. Yeah, that's valid. That is a very mm-hmm. valid question. Explicitly state why the request is inappropriate. Reestablish rapport with the patient. But I think the real thing is when you have an angry and upset patient, this is why we have patient agreements in place. Simply stating to the patient, we do not co-prescribe benzodiazepines when you are on buprenorphine. I don't go into these lengthy, well, because when you're binding to the GABA receptor and you're binding to the mu opioid receptor it's really dangerous because they're both they're they're both suppressing your respiratory drive that's not appropriate when you have an upset patient they are not able to process that information we just say this was prescribed in the past but i would like to help you i see that you're really upset and i would really like to help you with your anxiety let's see what we can do to help you i love that you use so many good techniques right there. Yes. So you gave a clear and simple explanation. You held your ground. You took responsibility for what you will and won't do. And I think you probably were repetitive. So using the broken record technique, one of the other articles says, use that technique, explain your reason in plain language, and even write it down and don't prolong it. Show faith and give hope that you can help them in another way. So yes. I can't, I won't do this, but I can do this. We can work on your, you know, work on your anxiety because that's why you're here anyway. Let's talk about what we can do. And I love that you said, I won't do this. I will not do this. Because when we say, no, I can't really do that. It leaves it open to the patient that you're just a jerk and you're just refusing to do this for me. You could write me this prescription. We need to be, again, that clear language. I will not write you this prescription because it's not appropriate treatment plan for you. This is not appropriate. 
And so I will not be writing you an inappropriate prescription. That's a really good lesson for me. We just had this, we had the day that the Utah legislature decided that any provider in the state of Utah could give out a medical cannabis card without special training. We had two potential patients call the clinic, basically demanding a medical cannabis card without even being seen. The staff response was like, no, we can't, we can't do that. And they flipped their lid. One of them said they're going to sue us because we actually can. Well, we can do it, but we won't. We need to see them. We need to have an indication. It's actually a prescription. It's a prescriptive power in a way. So you see, that's a very good tip for me, the difference between can't and won't. Because personally, I love to hide behind can't. (laughs) Well, I can't do it. It's policy or I can't do it. It's protocol. And you know, that's kind of a chicken way to do it. So I I think this is really good to just own, own what you will and won't do and just say, I won't do that. I will do this. And it's not really about can't. Yes. And I think it's very clear to the patient is I will help you with your anxiety and getting to the point, like you said, that broken record, I see you're in distress, I see you're anxious, and I will help you with your anxiety. And this is what we can do. It's very challenging, but this works. We This one I have done many times. <laughs> So we yeah, know it sounds works. Like you're, you're very so has skilled. Paula. We've done this. <laughs> well, I and I really think the article, the fine art of refusal, it, which was in February 20, 2004 by Francis Spackerman, PhD, is such a good article. It's really short. I would encourage everyone to read it. And it goes through just those little tips. Yes. It's only when you practice these kinds of skills do you even begin to be half comfortable with it because it's when it's in the heat of the moment that it's just really easy to get into your defensive ego stance to be like, well, I'm not going to do that. You can't, you know, it's my license, blah, blah, blah. It's great to learn how to have these very calm responses that are protocolized in your head and you say, okay, I'm calm, I speak quietly and slowly, use a broken record technique, show faith in patients that they actually can muster the ability to problem solve as well. That's great. What ended up happening? with patient Y, he was able to accept a prescription for some buspirone. The doctor-patient rapport was maintained, checked in with the patient the next day. He was doing better and thanked us for taking the time just to listen to him. Our next case, so patient Z, this is our non-compliant, no-shows, never-pays, always-late patient. (laughs) We're combining them all into one. I love the no show never pays always late. That that should be an acronym for a lot of folks. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. true. <laughs> this is why a lot of a lot of administration administrators over medical clinics don't want any addiction patients. Yes. Oh man, we struggle, struggle, struggle. Yes, this is probably the most challenging, I think, for honestly, like you said, our administrative staff, because they have to deal with the brunt of this. So patient Z, 25-year-old female, six months into treatment. You are brought to the scene because she's loudly arguing with receptionist after missing her third appointment in a row. She's in the waiting room insisting she has to have a refill without being seen. She insists that Dr. Candy, your partner, has given her a refill in the past without being seen and does not understand why she cannot have a refill now. There's so many things in here, but I think the most important is about clinic policies of not just kicking it down the line. When we do this in medicine all the time, disservice to patients and your colleagues. I'm just going to give in... I'm just going to give them five Lortab today and it can be somebody else's problem later. We have to stop that kind of behavior or I'm just going to give them a refill this time. 
If we have a protocol in our clinic that we don't do refills without a visit, we don't do refills without a visit. We just, you don't do that. I know you have a lot to say on that, Paul. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's just really tough. I mean, what's really hard is to get the whole group together on that because, I mean, every provider has their own practice style and their own level of comfort. A lot of providers are perfectly happy letting patients have refills for months without being seen. I think those of us who treat patients with substance use disorder, we're a little bit more guarded and possessive over our patients. We understand that they need closer follow-up. They are at higher risk for diverting and abusing their medications. They have higher co-occurring psychiatric illness. We want to see them often, and it's part of our predetermined treatment agreement that we will see each other often. But I could not agree with you more that this needs to be a predetermined clinic culture. Not even policy and procedure aside, it's what do you as a clinic want to manifest yourselves at to the community? What do they expect when they walk in the door? And it's really surprising. It's really amazing if they know if folks, I mean, we do this. This is not just us and them. If I know that I can get away with calling and getting a refill for my prescription one hour before it's run out or on a Saturday day or when I'm out of town and left my prescriptions, I will do that if I'm if I can get away with it. But if I know that the clinic closes at five on Friday and I have to give 72 hours notice and I could never call in for an early refill and if I lose my prescription, that's my own problem, then I know that. And so it's just all about culture and compassion coming together to keep people safe and to keep providers sane. I could not say it better, Paula. That is so important. I am so sad. I ran into a provider and they had stopped treating patients with addiction because they perceived that was the problem. And I just said, well, what happened? Why, why did you stop treating? Well, it was exactly this problem, Paula. There was no structure. And there was this culture of, yeah, we just give patients kind of really let them run the clinic. You are running the clinic. You, at the end of the day, have to be in charge. And that means boundaries. We have to set firm boundaries. I am very much about transparency. From the patient's first time they enter the clinic, this is what we offer. These are the clinic policies. And this is, like you said, I love that, the culture. This is the culture in the clinic. You're not going to get an early refill from me or any of my partners. This is just, and it's not that it's not compassionate care, but we're very clear. But when you need to be seen, there is always a provider here that is going to be able to see you and treat you and take care of you. And it's going to be the same high level of care. So I think that's just what you want to set. What do, what am I projecting out there? This inconsistency. Well, one month you have to be seen, but the next, the next month, well, I'm running a little bit behind. And so we're going to be a little happy. We promised our patients. I agree. I couldn't agree more. And also, if we if, if we have people who constantly no-show or are late or don't pay, that's our fault. That is our fault. Yes. And we need to figure out why. Why are they no-showing? Why are they late? And why can't they pay? And how do we adjust so that those things don't happen? Because these are classic barriers to accessing care, and this is care that saves their lives. Are their co-pays unaffordable? Was it not clear at the beginning that they had a copay? Did we have this wishy-washy culture where one front desk person lets them pay next yes. time? Where the rule is that you always pay. You you don't show up to your drug dealer without money. I mean, you have money. You show up and you pay. You don't get the service without the payment. And in terms of being late and you know no showing, I am the worst at being like five minutes late for everything, except for yoga. I Because you can't go into a yoga class five minutes late, they shut the door. So do you know what? I'm 
never late for yoga. That is so hypocritical. So it just shows you that you won't be late for what you have to be on time for. Now, of course, there are social factors that affect people. And I'm, I, I don't mean to be like my entitled white self saying that yoga is the same as seeking treatment for substance use disorder, but setting up expectations and then having people show up to meet them. And if they just can't because they're not organized enough or they have enough barriers standing in their way, then we're the dumbasses setting it up that way. We need to set an open clinic, open door policy, open groups, whatever it is to make sure that people can access treatment without it having to be something that they have to be on time for. And same thing for no-shows. If you have chronic no-shows, what's your policy for that? Figure out that. If you have a no-show that was unavoidable, well, then there has to be a way to make that up. Or maybe you do group group visits. Or maybe you have an open clinic time on Thursday afternoons from 1 to 5 or from 7 to 9 p.m. I mean, there's got to be ways that we adapt to meet the patient's needs instead of always thinking that it's their fault. Yes. And I think it's important to address those issues when we start holding them accountable to that. And as soon as they learn that, well, I can just show up late, then they will. When they learn, no, you can't show up late, you won't be seen or you will have to wait. You will have to, you show up late, then you can sit and wait four hours until our open block. Then they say, well, this isn't convenient for me. Well, then you can choose to have an appointment time. Then they, then that may change. So giving them acceptable choices that are acceptable to you and let them choose, then that empowers them and gives them still access to treatment. I love that your suggestions there that think about different ways that sometimes can you adapt anything in your clinic? Yeah, no, I think there's lots of ways that we can troubleshoot this. And, you know, what we want to avoid really is terminating people because of non-payment or trouble maintaining their appointments if they want to still stay engaged. That's, that's true. And the last thing I want to bring up that this case points out, you have a patient, they're, they're in the waiting room, they're in a public area, having a loud conversation argument with your staff, remove the patient from the situation. It's always, it's upsetting to your staff. It's upsetting to other patients. It's, this always occurs when you have a packed waiting room, right? If you have to pull them into an empty exam room so that they can finish talking to your receptionist, or you need to pull them into an office, just say, you know what, let's just let's just pull them out here. So again, you can de-escalate that situation. So give them an opportunity to just get them out of that situation. So everyone has a moment to just kind of step back. That might be a good time to have two people present. I love that. The other thing I th- I think we forgot to talk about were behavioral contract. Yeah, when you were talking about the angry, aggressive, manipulative patient, we talked about ways to de-escalate patients and kind of establish rapport. And those things are all important. However, I I think it's really appropriate at the outset of treatment for patients, you know, you always want to have informed consent and a behavioral or a treatment agreement where it's really explicit what patients can, can expect from treatment from you. You already talked about this. So you will get this treatment and in return, you know, we will expect that you come on time to your appointments, that you don't miss your appointments, that you're prepared to give a urine sample, that you don't give away or 
or sell your prescription medications, et cetera, et cetera. And then in the setting of aggressive or rude behavior or yelling at staff that you really know what, how you're going to act. And, you know, we would staff this in my old clinic, we would have an interdisciplinary team meeting to discuss patients who were kind of out of control. And we'd decide if patients were really dangerous of like, if they would a danger to our staff and if they needed to be referred somewhere where they could be managed in a more kind of mental health setting or if they needed to be put on a behavioral contract where they were sat down. We had an amazing office manager who would sit down with them and say, we really understand you were upset, but it's not okay for you to talk to our staff like that. And we don't, it's not how we talk to each other here. This is not acceptable. And in the future, you know, we won't be tolerating that kind of set the expectation and lay it out consequences, just like you do kind of with a kid. If you do this, this is what the consequence will be. And I I think it's really important to do that. And then if people continue to have trouble maintaining that, or they violate that, that you say, look, we're just not be able to care for you. Uh, You can't bully or yell at my staff and make my MA cry. It's just not, we're not going to do that. I think that's excellent to protect ourselves and we need to protect our staff and do our best trying to preserve that doctor-patient relationship. But sometimes you can't. And I think, but those behavioral contracts are excellent. Yeah, I love that. That's a great idea. All right. Our final points. I think the most important thing is with these three cases, what we perceive as difficult patients. It doesn't mean we're going to immediately fire patients. Like Paula just said, use behavioral contracts, give the patient space to save face, to be able to calm down when you have an angry and aggressive patient. Remember, it it is okay to end the visit, walk out of the room. It's important to protect yourself. Use patient agreements and that's your expectations and the patient expectations, like Paula said. Any other key takeaways? Like you said. Yeah. Like- <laughs> <laughs> you're, I love this. You're, you're so good at this, Darlene. You're diplomatic and compassionate. And this is why when I inherit patients from you, which I just did this week, by the way, mm-hmm. one of your patients came to see me. All they had to say were glowing things, but they moved to Salt Lake and they can't see you anymore. But they were like, I love Dr. Peterson. She was the best doctor. So you're doing a good job, even though sometimes it feels like we're banging our head again the wall often right thank you paula until next time hey check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com thank you so much to ricky valides for use of his song awake check him out at rickyvalides.com Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on this show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.